Our scripture this morning comes from the Gospel of John, and I'll be reading verse, chapter 3, verses 1 through 17. There was a Pharisee named Nicodemus, a Jewish leader. He came to Jesus at night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher who has come from God, for no one could do these miraculous signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered him, I assure you, unless someone is born anew, it is not possible to see God's kingdom. Nicodemus asked, how is this possible for an adult to be born? It is impossible to enter the mother's womb for a second time and be born, isn't it? Jesus answered, I assure you, unless someone is born of water and the spirit, it is not possible to enter God's kingdom. Whatever is born of flesh is flesh, and whatever is born of spirit is spirit. Do not be surprised that I said to you, you must be born anew. God's spirit blows where it wishes. You hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it is going. It is the same with everyone who is born of the spirit. Nicodemus said, how are these things possible? Jesus answered, you are a teacher of Israel and you don't know these things? I assure you that we speak about what we know and we testify about what we have seen, but you don't receive our testimony. If I have told you about earthly things and you do not believe, how will you believe if I tell you about heavenly things? No one has gone up to heaven except the one who came down from heaven, the human one. But just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, so must the human one be lifted up, so that everyone who believes in him will have eternal life. God so loved the world that he gave his only son so that whoever one who believes in him wouldn't perish, but will have eternal life. God didn't send his son into the world to judge the world, but that the world might be saved through him. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. This is a curious and interesting story and one, at least in part, that most people even non-Christians are familiar with. The story of Nicodemus. Nic- Nicodemus is a, is a Pharisee, a, a, a Jew of Jews, so to speak. He, he is also a member of the, of the ruling council. Um, so the ruling council was kind of this group of, I think it's called, the, well, I know it's called the Sanhedrin, uh, uh, who come together and basically decide matters of law for the people of Israel. So Nicodemus was not only a Pharisee, which is kind of the holiness people of the first century, right? He, the, the Pharisees were, were big on, on maintaining holiness. Their whole thing was, how do we be the holy people that God has called us to be? And so what they did is they, they actually took all the laws, that not, not just for, for Israel and for the people, but for the priests, and began to follow those laws because they wanted to be holy unto God. Now, we often get down on the Pharisees, Right? We often kind of see them as they come on the scene and you know, boo hiss and, and see them as ultimately the villains of the stories in which they're in. But, but I think it's helpful for us to see the Pharisees not simply as sort of one-dimensional villains, but people who are genuinely trying to follow God, people who, who want to be holy unto God. Now, sometimes they get it wrong, but who among us doesn't? And as people from the holiness tradition of which the Nazarene is— we sometimes get it wrong, too, trying to be holy. And so I just want us to make sure that we're, we're seeing the Pharisees in their full three-dimensional selves, not simply as one-dimensional villains on a page. Because, though sometimes they are the foil for Jesus' arguments, in fact, often are the foil for Jesus' arguments, sometimes we should read them charitably rather than just as the enemy. 
So I just want to encourage you as you hear the story today, as, as you hear anew perhaps this story today, that, that you see Nicodemus not as the boo-hiss villain or as the idiot who doesn't get it, because I don't think those things are necessarily true about Nicodemus. Let's see him as perhaps someone who is cautiously seeking answers from Jesus, as it were. So Nicodemus comes to Jesus. He comes at night, which is, narratively speaking, ultimately something that says something's off here, right? When we think about when you come and see people, you know, the daytime is the natural time. If someone knocks on your door after 9 o'clock, you're generally very suspicious of what they're doing there. Um, I was thinking back on TV shows and movies and books that I've read, and whenever someone knocks on the door at night, the first question is not, hey, how you doing? It is, what are you doing here? Because it's unusual. It's odd. It's supposed to key us in that this is not a normal encounter. This is not Nicodemus running into Jesus in the marketplace, right, where everyone can see this is Nicodemus coming to Jesus under the cover of darkness. Again, I don't think we should read this as that's like boo hiss. He's not a villain, but it's not out in the open. It's a cautious approach. It's the approach of someone who might be thinking, what will others think of me if they see me going to Jesus and talking to him? Or it might be, "Ah, my daytime job might preclude me doing this, so I'm going to come at night and just kind of test out the waters. But Nicodemus comes to Jesus, and he sits down and has a conversation with him. Now, the first thing that Nicodemus says to Jesus is, hey, we know that you're from God. Because you can't do the things that you do if you are not from God, which, which is a good start, right? It's a good acknowledgement. It's interesting that he doesn't just say, I know. It's not like he's setting himself apart from the others around him. He's saying we, which would indicate perhaps the Pharisees or even the ruling council, right? He approaches Jesus with sort of this olive branch of saying, we, we know that, that something good is going on here with you and in you. And perhaps he's like, well, like we, we, you know, we get in arguments, but... We, we recognize that something's going on here. That, that what you're doing is from God because you do some things that, that are just impossible outside of being associated with God, right? Oftentimes, Jesus' miracles, especially in John, are called signs, right? Something that points to a larger reality, and that's what Nicodemus is acknowledging. He's acknowledging the signs. Like, we see the signs, Jesus. This is God at work. Now, we don't, I don't know ultimately what, what Nicodemus' purpose was in coming to Jesus because Nicodemus never gets a chance to answer or ask a question or to propose a, an issue. In fact, the next thing that happens is Jesus starts to answer a question that Nicodemus never asked. Jesus says, if anyone wants to enter into the kingdom of heaven, they must be born anew. Now, there's a typical sort of Johannine play on words here because anew can also mean from above. And so Nicodemus hears, you must be born again. We know that Jesus didn't mean born again, like born physically again. But that's what Nicodemus hears. And and as it happens often in John, Nicodemus gets confused and he gets stuck on sort of the, the language that Jesus is using. Is it anew? Is it from above? But Nicodemus hears anew. And so he has this classic misunderstanding. And so he asks Jesus, it's not possible for a person to be born again, is it? How can a, a man or a woman enter into the mother's womb again and be born again? Born anew. 
classic misunderstanding. The, the, the gospel of John is full of these misunderstandings. In fact, almost every time Jesus gets to talking with somebody, there is a misunderstanding like this. Just a preview of next week, Jesus is going to meet a woman at a well, and he's going to say, I will give you living water. And she says, give me this water so I don't have to come and draw water anymore. Classic misunderstanding. Classic John. And again, that's what's going on here. And, and John sets up these pieces to, to remind us of, of, of what Jesus is coming to say is not really immediately evident to the people around him. It's not clear to the people around him what Jesus is talking about. This is not normal language for them to hear. This is different kind of unusual stuff that they don't grasp and cannot grasp without his help. Later on, Jesus will say, no one comes to the Father unless he is drawn. Right? People need help to understand. And so Nicodemus, is, he's confused. He's asking this question, like, how can it be possible that, that we are born again? And, and he's going through the visual image of what this means in his mind, right? Right? And it's, and it's weird, and it's disturbing, and it's impossible. It's not biologically sound. It, it, it's all sorts of things, and it's just messing him up. Right? How can this be? How can it be possible that an adult is born again? Of course, she just didn't mean born again. Again, the word can mean born from above, right? Not again above, right? That's what's going on here. But again, Jesus doesn't directly answer the question as, again, so hap- happens so often in the book of John. Jesus doesn't address the immediate question. Jesus addresses the question that needs to be addressed, when you read John, just this is a good Bible study. Like, don't think about Jesus as evading. Think about Jesus as actually getting to the issue that needs to be got to. Right? Nicodemus comes and says, oh, you're a great teacher. We know you're from God. And Jesus says, well, let me tell you about the kingdom of God. That's what's important. And so Jesus continues to teach. And he says, unless someone is born of the water and the spirit, it is not possible to enter God's kingdom. So again, he doesn't address the sort of again or above, but he says, you must be born of the water and of the spirit. Now, what does that mean? Uh, I would venture to say, if anyone says they know for sure what exactly that means, I have questions. But here's what we think it means. Here's, here's the, a, a good guess and, and, a, and a very educated guess of myself and many scholars. So, so Jesus is talking about born from the water. If we think about what physical birth entails, born of water, right? And then Jesus says, but you also must be born from the spirit. It's not enough to be born physically to enter the kingdom of God. You must also be born spiritually from above or anew, however you want to read that, however you want to look at that. That is what is necessary, both and. So the kingdom of God is not just a matter of being brought into this world. Right? One must be born anew, again, from above. He says, what is flesh is flesh, what is spirit is spirit. These are fairly obvious tautologies, right? That's true. Um, This is this, right? Water is water, spirit is spirit, flesh is flesh, right? All this stuff. But Jesus says, you must be born of both. It's not simply enough to be born of the flesh. You must be born from above. And so Nicodemus asks the question, how can these things be? How can these things be, Jesus? Right? This completely, it's hard to grasp. 
I read this and I go, I'm not, on my good days, I go, I think I know what Jesus is saying. On my good days, I go, yeah, I get it. And, but unaided, if I were just to come to this and Jesus was talking to me and I'd never heard of this stuff before, I would be like, what? How can these things be? How is it possible that any of this, what is going on here, Jesus? But, but how Jesus seems to respond is face palm, right? He says, how, how can you, a teacher of Israel, know the, not know these things? He goes on to say, you're supposed to be the one teaching Israel. You're the, supposed to be the ones who are, who are bringing God to the people, right? You're the, you're the ones who understand the scriptures. You're the one who have searched the scriptures. You're the holiness people. How can you not understand that it is not enough just to be born physically, but that, that God has to do something anew you, that, that you have to be born of, of sort of God's spirit, of, of God's work in you? And, and, and how can you not understand these things? You're the leaders of Israel. Uh, poor Nicodemus. I, I feel bad for him. Not, not because he's, he's wrong per se, and not, but just because over the years, poor Nicodemus, the first introduction, fortunately it's not the last, but the first introduction we have to him is Jesus just saying, how in the world can you not understand these things? You have the history of God with the people of Israel, and yet you don't understand these things. But again, if I'm being honest... I'm more Nicodemus than I am Jesus in this story. Much more. But what's going on here is we're beginning to see something that we need help understanding these things. Nicodemus knew the scriptures probably better than I know the scriptures. And yet he even doesn't understand But the great thing about the Gospels is Jesus is there to help him understand. And so Jesus is walking him through all of these things. You must be born of not just water, but of spirit. You must be born from above and born anew. And and even though Jesus kind of says, how can this be? And how can you not know? Well, Jesus answers his own question there. He says, How is it that you not know? Well, we tell you, you don't believe our testimony. Again, we're clued into something that Jesus is doing here, that that Jesus is offering testimony to the truth, to what things are and and what it is. And and Nicodemus has already said, you are a good teacher. You're from God, right? And so Jesus seems to take that and go, okay, if you know I'm from God, then why don't you listen to me about these things? If you believe I'm from God, then, then why don't you believe the testimony that we speak of about these things, about what God is doing, about who God is? There's lots of answers to that question that we could throw out about why the Pharisees, Sanhedrin, ruling class, whoever didn't like what Jesus had to say. There's lots of things. They didn't want to change. They were invested in power. Jesus made them uncomfortable. I mean... Do those things sound familiar? Like those are things we struggle with when Jesus speaks to us too. But he says, you don't receive our testimony. And he says, if I have told you about earthly things and you don't understand, how in the world do you expect me to tell you about heavenly things? And you get it. Not looking very good for Nicodemus right now. But let's be fair. We are Nicodemus in this story. We're not Jesus. We don't understand either. But Jesus continues on. And here he makes 
the good and right point, right? Jesus says, no one has gone to heaven except for the human one who has gone up and who has come down. Jesus begins to identify himself. Jesus begins to say, right, the human one, and he doesn't outright at this point yet say it's me, but he's saying, I understand these things because I've been there, right? The human one has gone up to heaven and come down. The human one understands these things for he is a bridge between what is earthly and what is heavenly. He is the one who is born of water and from above. And then Jesus kind of takes a left turn. He says, no one has gone, come down or gone, been to heaven except for the human one. And, and then he says, but just as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so too must the son of man or the human one be lifted up. I don't know if you're all familiar with this particular story in Exodus. So, so here's, here's the story, and I'll try to be brief. Uh, try. So the people are wandering the wilderness, right? Okay, that's not new. Um, the people have been delivered from Egypt through the waters of the Red Sea. Interesting, interesting parallel there. They came through the waters. Anyway, sorry, tangent. They come through, they're in the wilderness, they don't have water, they complain, God gives them water from a rock, awesome. They don't have food, they complain, God gives them manna. And then they're wandering a little bit more and they still complain. They complain about God bringing them into the wilderness to die. And then they say, we have no food and we're sick of this miserable food. Now, what they're saying is we don't have anything but manna to eat. God has given them manna from heaven right? This miracle bread, this what is it from heaven, God has provided for them every day to remind them that they don't live on bread alone, but every word that comes from the mouth of God. And they're sick of it. And so they complain. And what happens as a result of that, and, and in that time, is it says that serpents came into the camp and began biting the people, right? So they're in an area with lots of snakes, and they come and they bite the people, and people are dying. It's not a good scene. And so what God does, is he says, Moses, here's what I want you to do. I want you to make a bronze snake and I want you to lift it up on a pole so that whenever somebody is bitten by one of the serpents, they are to look upon that and they will be healed. So Moses did this. And in the middle of the camp, he sets up this, this snake on a pole. This is actually, I, I can't remember exactly where it is, but this is something that they have erected recently up there. The same place where this happened. And whenever the people were bitten by a snake, if they were bitten by a snake, they could look upon this and they would not die, but they would be healed. It's a pretty amazing story and pretty strange story. Um, the rest of it's strange because ultimately the snake on a pole becomes an idol and, and they have to destroy it because people start worshiping it instead of God. But, but ultimately what it is that God says, here's this thing, you guys are in trouble and you have gotten yourselves in trouble. And so I am going to give you a means of getting out of that trouble so that when you look upon this, it is an act of faith saying that God is going to heal us if we do this. As strange as that sounds. So an act of faith, the people would look and they would be healed. It's an act of God's love for the people. 
And ultimately, Jesus says, just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, so too must the Son of Man be lifted up. So Jesus places himself in, in parallel, as a parallel story, or an analogous story, is, is this means of salvation in the wilderness by which the people were to escape the death that came from the bite of the serpent, which came from ultimately their own sin and rebellion. It says, just as that happened in the wilderness, so too must the Son of Man be lifted up. What he is saying is the Son of Man will be the means of salvation. In the same way, but greater, than was the serpent in the wilderness. For he is the one who is not simply born from flesh, but born from above. The human one who has gone up to heaven and come down and will be lifted up as a means of salvation for the world. And then he comes to something most of us are familiar with. He he quotes this wonderful scripture that we know from football games and other things. Where'd it go? There it is. Right? He says, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever would believe in him should not perish but have eternal life. And that is my new king international version of it. I don't know if you're like me that you always sort of just mishmash of every version you know in your head when you quote that, but that's what that was for me. Right? We all all know that story. We all know the the text. Most people who aren't Christians know the text because they've seen it at football games. If you want to hear about that guy, ask me afterwards. But we often divorce it from the context in which we find it. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son. Now, Now, Jesus sets this in parallel with that story of the snake in the wilderness. And, and, and what I ultimately have to come to is I look at this and I go, God is motivated more by love than God is by wrath. And let me be clear that the snakes were punishment for the sin, but, but God was under no obligation to save the people from the snakes. No obligation other than that God loved God's people. I mean, the people of Israel did some nasty stuff, just like we do nasty stuff, right? They rebelled just like we rebel. This is not a boo on them, by the way. This is a, we're all supposed to gather. God was under no obligation to continue on or to save them. They broke the covenant many times. But God is so motivated by God's own love for the people that God provides means of salvation in the wilderness, the snake, so that whoever would, would believe enough to look at it and receive God's salvation would find it. So analogously, in in Jesus' time, in our time as well, right, we find ourselves in a mess. We're we're a mess. I'm a mess, right? If you didn't know that, spend an hour with me, but I'm a mess. I'm lost. On my own, I am pretty helpless. I am certainly helpless to save myself from anything, let alone my own rebellion. But God loved me, loved Israel, loves us, the world enough for no other reason than God's love. God sends Christ to be lifted up that all who would believe in him might find not just physical life. The stuff in the wilderness, that was physical life, right? They'd just be healed from a snake bite. But God offers Christ so that we who would believe, who would look upon the one who is lifted up, might not perish, but have eternal life, that we might be born again, born from above. For no other reason than God's love for the world, 
and not just for a certain subset of the people in the world, the whole world. I mean, that's part of the scandal of God's grace. Is yes, God God said to a certain people, "I, I want you to be the vehicle so that the world might know my love. But this wasn't a regional God. This wasn't a God who said, well, the Israelites, they're an ethnic people that I like, so I'm going to save them and no one else. It's a God who looks and says, I love my creation so much that I'm willing to die for it. It's pretty amazing. And that whoever would look upon the one who was lifted up, Christ, whoever would believe in him would have eternal life. Now, now here's something interesting that I I just want, because we know the story. We know what lifted up means, don't we? We know that lifted up means the cross. That's what we know, because we've read to the end of the story. But probably if we think of lifted up or glorified, we, we don't tend to have this in our minds anywhere outside of Christendom, anywhere outside of being Christians. Like we tend to think of, you know, Christ as victor, Christ the, the victor who sits upon the throne in glory, right, gilded. We, we tend to think of thrones and power when we think of lifted up or exalted or glorified. But one of the undercurrents, and which will be made more overt later, is that this is what it means for Jesus to be glorified. When Jesus headed to the cross, now is the time for the Son of Man to be glorified. This is what it means for Jesus to be glorified. This is the glory of God revealed to humanity. God who loves the world so much that Christ is willing to die for it. That while we are yet sinners, Christ dies for us. And that's pretty amazing stuff, if you ask me. Now here, at this point in this passage of scripture, Nicodemus has gone elsewhere. Like he's not mentioned again for many, 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 many chapters. As a dialogue partner, he's done. Which is instructed to us, for God continues to instruct us. For this isn't just a message for Nicodemus, or for the Jews of that day, for that matter. It is a message for all of us. God so loved the world that God gives his only son, whoever would believe. But here's the kicker that I love, and it's just wonderful addendum to this verse, because the verse doesn't end with whoever would believe would have eternal life. It goes on. For God did not send the son into the world to condemn the world, but rather to save the world through him. This is another sermon in my series of God is not a jerk sermons. In my mind, for most of my life, and even in some moments now, it creeps in. My thought about God is that God is waiting for me to mess up. That, that God's sort of fatherly characteristic is, is hovering over, waiting for me to transgress. And thereby punish or kill. And that is not correct, by the way. It's just a default. Like if, I, if, I, if something's going wrong in my life, sometimes even in the back of my mind, if it's not fully, I don't like to give it voice, but is that what is God punishing me for? What did I do to deserve this? Every now and again, I need to hear some God's not a jerk verses. That God's first desire, his first motivation is not judgment. 
Is there judgment? We can't get past. There's stuff in the Bible about judgment. It, it's there. So let's just be honest. But God's first and motivating desire is not judgment. And, and, and we can look at even the serpent in the wilderness, not as judgment upon the people as saying, look, you were so stupid and you rebelled and now you have to be reminded, but rather of God's love and care for the people. You rebelled. Here's a way out. Here's restoration. God sends Christ into the world, not as a condemnation, not as a finger wag. That Jesus doesn't come around wagging his finger. We sometimes give that to Jesus, but I don't think that's what Jesus did. Was Jesus true to what God had called him to do? Yes. Did Jesus call people to fidelity? Absolutely. But the reason Jesus came into the world is not to condemn the world. But to save it. And what's crazy is that's not always immediately obvious to us or the people who may not know Jesus. It may not always be evident in the way we treat people who don't know Jesus. Sometimes we use Jesus as a bludgeon rather than as a who Jesus is, which is the means of salvation for the world, myself and others. And ultimately, this leads us to this way of Jesus that is shown by the cross. This way of God that is shown by the cross. How does God operate in the world? Well, well, we can know by looking at the cross. This is how God operates. This is God's answer. God's answer to my rebellion is to give me a way out. Discipleship is not easy or cheap. But God says, you're lost, utterly so. You're Nicodemus, you don't understand these things. But here, let me teach you and let me show you. And so Christ is lifted up for us. That we might look upon the one who was pierced, believe in him, and therein find salvation. And not just for this life, but all who believe in him would have eternal life. For God did not send the Son into the world to condemn the world, but to save us through the death and resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ. So why do we celebrate a season like Lent? That's the question that's on the front of your bulletin anyway. Why Lent? As I approached this scripture and as I was reading through it and I was first planning all of these sermons, the thought that occurred to me, why Lent? is because I'm not real good at getting it on my own. I'm not... And I'm not the best scholar in the world, but I like to think that I'm adept. But I could study the scriptures, but without the aid of the Spirit, I may not find God there. I certainly won't find salvation. Why Lent? Why do we need to humble ourselves? Why do we need to take the time to say, God, search me and know me? Because I'm supposed to be a teacher of the people of God. And I fear sometimes that Christ might come to me and say, you're a teacher and you don't understand this stuff. 
Why do I need to submit? Because I don't have the answers he does. Salvation is not found in me. I don't think any of you are deluded in that, but in case you are, it's in him. Salvation is not in the words I bring. It's in the God who I hope are in those words. Why Lent? Why do I need to submit myself? Why do I do to check my heart? Why do I need to confess my sin? Because I'm Nicodemus too. And I need someone to guide me. And the Spirit guides me. But in a car, there can only be one driver. Lent is about me taking my... I almost said Jesus take the wheel. Lent is about me taking my hands off the wheel and allowing God to direct where the car goes. Metaphorically speaking, don't do that literally, please. It's about letting God direct. It's about letting the scriptures direct. It's about coming to these things and asking difficult questions and reminding myself that I'm more like Nicodemus in this story than anyone else. I'm more like Israel in this story, in need of desperate need of grace than anyone else. Why Lent? Because when I listen enough, I can hear Jesus saying, and yet, God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that even you who believe in him would not perish but have eternal life. It's a reminder that my life, physical and spiritual, is held, bound, and guaranteed, not in my own strength, but in Christ, who died for me. And so that's why it seems appropriate to take communion together today. Why Lent? To be reminded anew of the source of our life. The source of our salvation. To be reminded... That there is physical food and there is spiritual food. That there is physical life and there is spiritual life. And while those things are intimately connected, physical life does not guarantee spiritual. And so we come to the table this morning acknowledging the source of not only the bread we eat, but of the true bread that comes from heaven that gives us life as well. And it's a way for us to confess this to one another. And if you didn't grab communion as you came in and you would like to take it with us, it is available out on the, on the table in the foyer. I'm going to ask Grady and Sheldon to come back up as we prepare ourselves to receive this gift anew. Let's pray. Merciful and gracious God. You have given yourself to us that we might find life. You have given your son to us that in Jesus Christ we might find bread for the journey and life for our souls. Lord, help us to remember today that we are not just physical beings and that in order to find eternal life, in order to inherit the kingdom, we must not simply be born from a mother, but we must be born from above by your spirit. Lord, help us to remember this morning 
the Son of Man who was lifted up. Who was lifted up upon a cross, not because he had done wrong, but because in him we find life. Lord, we ask this morning that you would help us to submit ourselves to you. Or that we might pause in this series of Lent, and I hope beyond, to say, search our hearts and know us, O God. Remind us of where our life comes from. Remind us that whether in life or in death, our hope is in you alone. O God, we pray these things in your name. Amen. The communion supper instituted by our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ is a sacrament for the church, which proclaims his life, his suffering, and his sacrificial death and resurrection. And it celebrates the hope that he is coming again. It shows forth the Lord's death until he would return. And this supper is a means of grace in which Christ is present through the Spirit. It is to be received in reverent appreciation and gratefulness for the work and life that we have in Jesus Christ. All those who are truly repentant, forsaking their sins, and believing in Christ's salvation are invited to participate in this symbol of the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And we come to the table that we might be renewed in life and in salvation and that we might be made one by the Holy Spirit. So in the unity with the church, we confess our faith that Christ has died, that Christ has risen, and that Christ will come again. And so we pray, holy God, we gather at this table. In the name of your son, Jesus Christ, who by your spirit was anointed to preach good news to the poor, to proclaim release to the captive, to set at liberty those who are oppressed. Christ healed the sick, he fed the hungry, and he ate with sinners and established the new covenant for the forgiveness of sins. We live in the hope, Lord, of his coming again. And we are reminded that on the night that he was betrayed, he took bread, he gave thanks, he broke it, and he gave it to his disciples and said, this is my body which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Likewise, when the supper was over, he took the cup, he gave thanks and gave it to his disciples and said, drink from this, all of you. This is my blood of the covenant which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. Do this in remembrance of me. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. And so we gather together today as the body of Christ to offer ourselves to God in praise and thanksgiving. Lord God, we pray that you would pour out your Holy Spirit on us and on these gifts. Make them be by the power of your Spirit for us, the body and blood of Christ, that we might be for the world, the body of Christ who was redeemed by his blood. Lord God, by your Spirit, make us one in Christ, one with each other, and one in the ministry of Christ to the world until Christ comes in final victory. We pray these things in the name of your spirit and your son, Jesus Christ. Amen. This is the body of our Lord Jesus Christ, which is broken for you. May it preserve you blameless unto everlasting life. Eat this in remembrance that Christ died for you and be thankful. This is the blood of our Lord Jesus Christ shed for you. May it preserve you blameless unto everlasting life. Drink this in remembrance that Christ died for you and be thankful.
And as we prepare to leave this place, I would ask that you would stand and sing with me this final song as declaration of a God who sees us, who redeems us, and who offers himself to us that we might find life.